Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Good morning, everybody. Happy April Fool's Day. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the founder and senior partner for the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've represented HOAs and condominiums in the state of Arizona for the past 25 years, and my firm currently represents over a thousand planned communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. I also currently serve on my HOA board and I have for many years. I'm so happy that you guys could join us here today for our firm's virtual First Friday free call-in. First Fridays are a great time to get your questions answered on Arizona and HOA condo law at no charge. So here's how our First Friday is gonna work today. It's no joke, even though it's April Fool's Day, that we have over 40 questions this morning. So we have a lot of ground and territory to cover. If you haven't done so already, please submit your First Friday questions in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comments section on Facebook Live. And please do that as soon as possible. And then I'm going to go through and answer each questions between now and 10 a.m. Just a quick friendly reminder, due to the large number of volume of questions today that we've received, for this First Friday free opportunity is limited to one question per association. So if you plan on submitting a question live during this session, please include the name of your HOA or condo and your current role when you submit your question. Thank you for understanding. Okay, let's get started first with our 2022 legislative update. Well, the new legislative session started in Arizona on January 10th, and we have some interesting developments for you this week. At first, on March 30th, a couple days ago, Governor Ducey signed the first bill that is going to apply to planned communities in Arizona. This bill is House Bill 2131. As I said, it was signed by Governor Ducey on March 30th. This adds to the Planned Communities Act, Act Section 3318-19, but it applies only to planned communities. The gist of this law is that it's an artificial turf ban law, for lack of better words. And basically what it says is that if a planned community's documents allow natural grass on a member's property after the time of the developer control, the association cannot prohibit installing or using artificial turf on any member's property. And this is regardless if your documents talk about artificial turf and prohibit it, this law is going to trump your documents. So again, if planned communities documents allow natural grass on a member's property, and this is after the time of developer control, the association may not prohibit installing or using artificial turf on any member's property. Now, of course, like anything, the legislation is worded unusually. Honestly, I haven't seen that many planned community documents that talk about natural grass. And so it's an awkward way to phrase this. I think best practices for associations going forward is if you're a planned community and you have natural grass already in your community for your members and your post-developer control, 
if an owner wants to install artificial turf on their property, the association should not prohibit that owner from doing that. Now, there are a couple kind of things that you need to know about this law that are included in the language of the law, and those are that the association plan community can adopt reasonable rules regarding using artificial turf in your association. So some of the rules can be that the installation and appearance of the artificial turf can be regulated by these special rules that you may want to pass. And if those rules do not prevent installing artificial turf in the same manner, that natural grass would be allowed by the community documents. So you can't make those rules so restrictive that it's going to prevent the owners from installing artificial turf. Second, the rules that the association, planned community association can adopt can also regulate the location on the property and the percentage of property that may be covered with artificial turf to the same extent as natural grass and may regulate the artificial turf quality so they can't put in something that's not a high quality that wouldn't look good. So just some thoughts on the rules because this law just passed or signed into law two days ago. We are in the process now of helping associations adopt some rules regarding this issue and we're going to be talking about this more on our Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Academy the third Tuesday in April. And so we'll be addressing this more and we'll be talking about what some sample rules might look like. So make sure that you tune in on the third Tuesday of April to have more information on what types of rules you can put into place for your plan community and give you some sample language. A couple other caveats on this new law that was signed by the governor two days ago. A plan community can require the removal of a member's artificial turf if the artificial turf creates a health or safety issue that the member does not correct. Now, it's hard to anticipate what sort of a health or safety issue artificial turf could cause. Some things that come to mind immediately would be if maybe there's an excessive amount of dog waste or something of that nature, maybe pigeon droppings that could potentially be a health concern. Of course, the association can require that it be removed. But again, remember, The association's going to have to be really careful if they're demanding that somebody remove the artificial turf for health reasons and safety reasons. They'll have to have good documentation and an expert to claim that this is, in fact, a health and safety issue. Another time that the association can regulate the artificial turf is that the association can also require the replacement or removal of the artificial turf if it's not maintained in accordance with the association's standard of maintenance. So you have to look at your CCNRs or any special rules that you may have on maintenance on this issue. We may also want to just include that in the reasonable rules that we're passing regarding the artificial turf as well. Another important facet of this law is that if an owner is denied the right to have artificial turf and there's litigation about it, the court shall award reasonable attorney's fees and costs to the owner if the court finds that the plant community violated this law. And last, kind of a weird thing that they put in at the end of the law is this law doesn't apply to a planned community that has a unique vegetation and geologic characteristics that require preservation by the association and in which the viability of those characteristics is protected, supported, or enhanced as a result of the continued existence of natural landscaping materials. So I think maybe they may be talking about protected vegetation, possibly that might be protected by some sort of state or local laws. 
we'll have to look further into this and we'll be talking about this again more on our April Virtual HOA Academy. We'll be talking a lot more about this law and how it may impact your association, but we want to just give you a quick update and let you know about it because we're starting to see articles in the newspaper and other things happening, news stories about this. So we want to make sure that you have the facts. We also just get to talk a little bit about how the legislative session's going. As we've said on previous First Fridays, there were 17 HOA and condo related bills that were introduced in 2022. We're still watching the bills, but they've kind of have whittled down to about three that we think are really becoming more priority bills that have a likelihood of passing this year. One would be House Bill 2010, talking about associations allowing first responder flags as a protected flag that owners would be allowed to fly in the association. Another one is talking about political signs and peaceful assembly in an association by members. So we're keeping an eye on that one. And then terminating a condominium. These are three other priority bills that we're watching that of course have not passed yet and been signed by the governor, but we think there's a probability that these will continue to move and we're gonna keep our eye on them and we'll keep updating you on our first Fridays for the rest of the year and also through our virtual HOA academies, which are the third Tuesday of every month. Each week that the Arizona legislature is in session, our firm is posting an updated summary of the pending HOA and condo bills. And you can find this weekly updated summary on the homepage of our firm's webpage in real time. So every Monday we're updating it. And we're also going to share this with you on Zoom and Facebook Live now if we haven't already. Our weekly update, it also should have updated the information on the new legislation regarding the ban on artificial turf. So if you want to see that in writing, that would be a good place to look at the specific details on that. Okay, we also have another development. It's been really busy in the Arizona HOA world in March. There also is a Supreme Court ruling in Arizona that talks about the ability of an association to amend their CCNRs. And this case is the Callaway versus Calabria Ranch HOA. Our office is going to be sharing on Zoom and Facebook Live the link to this new case. Basically, this is going to make it more difficult for associations to amend their CCNRs, this case is, and we're going to be talking about this more extensively at our third Thursday Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Academy. So I hope you'll tune in to hear more about that case, the Callaway versus Calabria Ranch HOA case. Again, it's going to make it more difficult for associations to amend their CCNRs, and we're going to give you some tips on how we feel the case should be interpreted and how associations can pivot so that they can still do amendments to their CCNRs that will comply with the requirements of this particular new case. Okay, let's pop right into the questions that we have today. Like I said, we have a lot of questions. We've got about 45 minutes to go through them, so we're going to get started right away. First question is, our landscaper was given a 30-day termination notice due to neglect of our community. The board does not want to pay the landscapers and we'd like to take legal action as the landscaper is wanting payment in full. And the question is, how do we handle this? First, what I would say my recommendations would be that we need to take a look at the contract, get your attorney involved for the association. We definitely need to look at the contract and see what the termination provisions are and also to see whether we have evidence, enough evidence to refuse payment to the landscapers. So obviously this is a tough question for me to answer unless I have more information about the contract and what specifically the landscaper failed to do. 
and what the contract says about the requirements that the landscaper has to follow the contract. So great question. Get that contract to your association's attorney. Make sure you're documenting all of the problems with the landscaper. Whenever you have problems with the vendor, you should be taking photos. You should be sending written communications to the vendor, letting them know that you're unhappy and specific provisions of the contract that they're violating. And once we have all that information, then we can give you good recommendations on how to proceed. Okay, next question is from a board member. We are about to remove a single small patch of grass in front of a former show unit from 1996. I'm assuming by show unit you mean maybe it was like a model home in your association. Serving as a gathering point for the neighborhood children, there is ongoing vandalism from skateboards, bikes, and just the fun of kicking off the tops of the risers. Of course, all of this is a cost burden to the association. We are planning to convert it next month to granite. If the owner offers to pay for turf, will he be responsible for the cost of the conversion and maintenance of that turf? So I'm assuming that this is property that is owned by a homeowner now, even though it used to be maybe a model home. And for whatever reason, it sounds like there's a lot of gathering there and there might be some vandalism going on. I'm not sure why this is a cost burden to the association. So maybe this isn't a homeowner's area. Maybe this is the association's common areas, or maybe the association maintains the front of the areas, you know, this area in question. So it's hard for me to answer this question without more facts, but you're saying that you're planning to convert it to granite next month. And so I'm guessing maybe a little bit more that this is in fact a common area. And you're saying if the owner offers to pay for turf, will he be responsible for the cost of the conversion and maintenance of that turf? Okay, this is tough because I don't know if this is a common area or a homeowner's area. I need more facts, honestly. So I guess a couple things would be if this is a common area and the owner's owner or owners want to pay for artificial turf on the common areas, the new law doesn't won't be coming into play on this. And I would say that it's really a board decision whether or not you want to allow the artificial turf on common areas. I think this is probably something that I need to talk more with you about because I'm unclear where this property is located and etc. If you are going to put allow the owner to put artificial turf on common areas, it would be unusual. And you should have a maintenance, a written maintenance agreement that would be recorded if you want them to be responsible for the maintenance of that turf going forward. Okay, next question. Since Governor Ducey signed the law about overriding HOAs and allowing fake turf, can an HOA offer three to four different vendors and the type of turf we would prefer the owners to use in order to keep the HOA with some similarities to all turf lawns? If yes, when do we and how do we add this to our HOAs? Okay, really good question. So as I mentioned when I was talking about the different provisions in the law, the association, the plan community can adopt reasonable rules regarding the appearance, the installation and the appearance of the artificial turf and the location and the property percentage that may be covered with artificial turf. So what I would recommend is that you reach out to our firm and we can help you draft some rules that will assist your association with making sure that there's uniformity if owners do start to install the turf lawns and we can do that by the language that we put in the rules. Okay, next question is from a board member. We are a sub-association with 128 patio homes. All of our front yards are mowed and maintained by a landscape company. Will we be obligated to allow various homeowners to put in artificial turf? If so, will it be the homeowner's cost to have the watering systems removed 
And will we have to have a lower assessment to those homes that put in artificial turf? I knew that this artificial turf thing was going to create a lot of questions today. And so let's just break it down. So if you're, it says your patio homes, I don't know based upon what you've given to me, if the association is maintaining this area, you're saying that they're mowed and maintained by a landscaping company. I don't know if that's, it sounds like possibly that means that the association is responsible for maintaining this area. And so if we go back and look at the new legislation, it talks a little bit about this. It says that a planned community can prohibit the installation of artificial turf. If it's installed in an area, the association maintains or irrigates. And one thing to think about is if this is on a common area or a front yard area that the association under the CCNR maintains, the association can prohibit the installation of the artificial, but it has to be in an area that the association maintains or irrigates. So I think that answers the first part of your question, at least. I'd have to see your documents to give you a more definitive answer, but it appears that's the case that the association is maintaining this area. If so, would it be the homeowner's cost to have the watering system removed? If we flip this and let's say this is the planned community, this is the owner's property and they want to install the artificial turf on it and there's some sort of a common irrigation system that the association has, I think we again need to go back to the language of the statute. We may be able to prohibit the artificial turf in that area because we're maintaining this area and also irrigating this area. Usually turning off the watering system can be done by capping it if you know the system if this is flipped and this is individual owner's property area. Again, we just have to look at this on a case-by-case situation after I know more about each association's CCNRs. Would you have to have a lower assessment to those homes that put in artificial turf? I, my opinion is no. I don't think that an owner, based upon their choices that they make on their property, are in, would be entitled to ask for a lower assessment rate. Okay, question number four we have from a homeowner. With the recent Arizona Supreme Court decision, how can they legally negate how we change our CCNRs? We changed our CCNRs two years ago to eliminate short-term rentals. Will this still hold? Okay, so again, we're talking about hot topics, and I really love how all of you who are participating today are so up to speed on what's going on in our legislature and also with the recent Supreme Court ruling. So the Callaway versus Calabria Ranch case obviously is going to be a game changer in terms of how we structure our CCNR amendments. I don't believe that prior CCNR amendments that associations have done are going to be challenged under this case, although we never know. Remember that if you're in a condominium, an owner only has a year from the time that the CCNR amendment was recorded to challenge it. So that's something to factor in here. So how can the court, I guess the question you have is how can they become so involved in our private contract and telling us that we can't change it in certain ways? I agree. I'm actually very troubled by this case as well. I do think it's an overreach and I think that there may need to be a correction of the content of this case in future cases or legislatively in the future. So I think we just have to take the language of the case as it is, exists right now. And we need to be smart and savvy how we structure our amendments to our CCNRs going forward so that we meet the requirements of this case while it's still good law. 
And our firm's spending a lot of time thinking about this and helping associations navigate this. And we're going to be talking about this again on our third Tuesday virtual HOA Academy. So I encourage you to tune in and we're going to be dissecting that case in detail. And we're going to be giving associations suggestions on how you can legally change your CCNRs in light of this new case. Okay, question five is from a board member. I really appreciate hearing your thoughts on the recent Arizona Supreme Court decision relating to the amendment of community documents. Reasonable has been a standard applied in the past, but foreseeableness is much more subjective. And so I I agree, this is, again, we're all trying to interpret this case as we are navigating. And so what I would recommend is that you tune in again on our Tuesday virtual HOA Academy, which is going to be the third Tuesday in April, and hear more about the details of this case. But I think from our perspective, it's obviously this case is a game changer, but I think what we all need to do is look at the language of the case as we're doing amendments to our CCNRs, write the amendments in such a way that it complies with the new standard that the Supreme Court of Arizona has put into place. And I hope in the future that this case will be fine-tuned. Okay, next question, number six. We have, and this is from a board member, we have assessed the homes in our community, $827 for our street repairs. The deadline to pay is May 31st, 2022, and they had one year to pay. Can we publish in our newsletter the lot numbers for those who are delinquent with their assessment? We also have their street addresses. The project is $600,000 and the money not paid must come out of the reserves. Okay, so it looks like in the process of doing some street repairs in your association, you've got a looming deadline at the end of May. You've got some people that haven't paid. And so you're wondering if you can put their names in a newsletter or their lot numbers to, I guess, I don't, the purpose would be to let other people know in your community that they haven't paid. And I understand, I totally get it that this is a burden for the association if you have owners that are refusing to pay for the street repairs. However, I cannot in good conscience advise you to publish their names or their addresses or their lot numbers. It, it could be perceived as being vindictive or like a public shaming and we're all neighbors. I don't think that's something that your association is going to want to get into. What I can recommend is that you've got basically two months now continue to encourage owners to pay, remind them to pay, put in writing what the legal consequences will be if they don't pay, whether it's property being leaned, potentially foreclosure, potential justice court judgment against them. Just remind people the importance of having the street repairs done and that there are consequences if they don't pay in a timely manner. Okay, next question, number seven, is from a board member. ARS 331243G, which is in the Condominium Act, states, not later than the termination of any period of declarant control, the unit owners shall elect a board of directors of at least three members. Our board is aware of the ever-increasing difficulty in finding owners who are willing to serve on the board. Given the requirement for a minimum of three board members as shown above, and that our CCNRs require all board members to be owners, To what legal actions, if any, would our association be liable if we come upon a time when an insufficient number of owners are willing to serve on your board? So this is a problem that we see in some associations. 
where we just don't have people stepping up to volunteer to serve on the board. And so what are some options of the association if you find yourself in a situation where you can't find enough board members? Some things that we have done is communicate with your owners, send out lots of communications before your annual meeting, encouraging people to volunteer to serve on the board. Some associations have a business model that has the management company having more control over the affairs of the association and the board member just the board members just having more of an oversight role and a less active role. And maybe you only have meetings and if you do it that way quarterly or twice a year. I'm not saying that's what I suggest, I'm just saying that if you're having trouble getting people to serve, you can possibly encourage people to serve if it's less of a time commitment and it's more of an oversight role. Another thing that we have done in situations where we can't get anybody to serve on the board is our firm sends a letter to the owners and we just let the owners know that, okay, here are the consequences if you can't have a board, no one's volunteering to serve on the board. The possible consequences is that we have to have a receiver appointed by the court to run the association's affairs. And having a receiver running the affairs of the association could affect property values. It will definitely affect your assessment rate. It will go up significantly because not only do you have a management company, but then you'll have the receiver who's acting in the capacity of the board. And really, anytime I've ever sent a letter like that, we've had volunteers step up to serve on the board. So. There are options. If your association is in that situation, you'll want to reach out to our firm to give you some advice and help you navigate trying to find board members to serve. One other little tip on that would be calling people to volunteer to be on the board. I know that I've been on my board. I think you probably have heard that if you've listened in on our prior seminars, I serve on my board currently right now, actually two boards, the sub and the master board. And the first time I've been on the board a decade ago and then I got back on in 2016. And sometimes you have to ask people a couple times before they break down and say yes. And maybe continuing to communicate with people who would be highly qualified to serve on your board. And if they say no the first time, going back and asking them, please, if they would help us in the future by serving at least one year, you might be able to get more people to volunteer if you continue to follow up with them. Okay, our next question is from a board member. Our community streets are private, maintained by the HOA. We have some units that park across the sidewalk, blocking pedestrian access. I know this is, there is a state law that is legal to block sidewalks. Are state laws enforceable regarding private streets? So I'd have to look at how your association's streets are set up in your plat and your CCNRs, but Typically, an association has the responsibility to enforce the association's CCNRs if it is like a private streets or gated community. So what I would do is encourage you to look at your documents, see if there's any sort of a violation of the documents here. I'm confident there is. Might be a nuisance. There might actually be something specific about parking that talks about this. And then start contacting the owner regarding the violation, if you know who it is. Maybe even consider escalating this to your association's attorney. Okay, next question is from a board member. We're on question number nine. Our CCNR state that the association may assess a late fee if an association is not paid within 15 days of the due date. Our document says that the late fee is in the amount established from time to time by the board of directors. Are we required to state the exact legal fee of 10% in the CCNRs or is this verbiage adequate? 
So it, it really depends on if your association is a condominium or planned community. There is a limitation on the amount of late fees that you can charge if you are late in the payment of your assessments in a planned community. And that is either 10% of the assessment rate or $15, whichever is greater. I know because your contact information is on my list of questions this morning that you actually live in a condo because I'm familiar with your association. So in a condominium, it's treated a little bit differently. So if the assessment isn't paid, like you said, within 15 days of the due date in a condominium, the board can establish the late fee in a condominium. And that is, there's no limitation on that in the condominium act. So what I would suggest is we're telling our boards, adopt the same percentages and maximum late fee you can charge as it is in the Planned Communities Act, even though the Condominium Act gives you a little leeway and you can charge more. I think it's just best practices to establish the same late fees that there are in the Condominium Act. If you are going to exceed those, if you're going to charge more than 10% of the assessment or $15, which is the condominium, which is the Planned Communities Act limitation, I would really encourage you to be careful not to go too high because I think if you get too excessive on the late fee, you potentially the reasonableness of the late fee could be challenged by the owner in a court of law. Okay, next question, number 10. Board member, what, if any, responsibility will the HOA board have if to provide charging stations for future electric cars? We have assigned a carport parking for 124 units and 23 twin homes have garages. We actually have a great blog on this exact topic that we're going to be sharing with you on Zoom and also on Facebook Live, and it talks about electrical vehicles and how associations can handle this. With an HOA, I think there's less of a responsibility for the association to provide electrical charging stations because everybody has typically they're charging it in their garage or maybe somewhere else on their property that they own. In a condo, this is becoming more of an issue for sure, and associations need to take a close look at the demographics in your association. How many owners have electric cars? If they're parking the electric cars in common area carports or maybe in an underground parking capacity, should the association seriously consider having charging stations that they manage and charge owners to use? So I would encourage you to take a look at our blog on this topic. And also, I know that this is a hot topic that we're going to be discussing in the future live on one of our virtual seminars. I can think of, I think we're teaching some classes for the city of Chandler here coming up soon and also some other classes on hot topics. So I'd encourage you to check out our webpage to see which classes we're going to be discussing this. It's typically what we call a hot topic and we'll definitely be discussing this in the future too. Okay, next question, number 11, from a board member. A homeowner hoarder is making it our neighbors miserable. How can we fix this situation? So again, we have a blog topic on this exact topic. It's called How to Handle Hoarders Carefully, and we're going to be sharing that with you right now. Last year, we also had a virtual class where we talked about how to handle hoarders. And the video we will share is queued up to the exact point where I start talking about hoarders in that video for your convenience. So I encourage you to take a look at that. That's going to be more of a deep dive with hoarders. You really do just have to go the legal route. You have to escalate this to your attorney. And they typically do have to take legal action to get the owner to clean up their property. Okay, next question. 
Number 12 from a board member. We have a homeowner that wants to put a carport alongside his home behind a double access gate. I've looked into our CCNRs and architectural review guidelines, and there isn't anything that refers to carports, but there are items that refer to sheds, pergolas, ramadas, gazebos. What are our legal rights to approve or deny this request? So anytime we're looking at an architectural request from an owner, we need to go back and look at what do your CCNRs say about the architectural review process. And there very likely will be something in there that gives the board or the architectural committee discretion as they're reviewing this pursuant to the language that's in your CCNRs. Again, if you're going to deny it, you probably want to reach out to your attorney to get some advice about what language you should use in your CCNRs or your architectural guidelines to deny it. Most CCNRs can't cover every possible architectural change, so there's usually some general language that you can use to deny things. But you want to make sure that you have a good rationale and that the disapproval letter is legally defensible should you deny it. So I would definitely suggest that you reach out to your association's attorney or our law firm to help you with that. Question 13 from a board member. Our CCNRs have two conflicting paragraphs describing responsibility for exterior maintenance. One paragraph says that the owner has responsibility and the other says that the HOA has responsibility. How do we resolve these two conflicting paragraphs? Well, I think you should reach out to your attorney and get a second opinion to see if in fact they really do conflict or we're going to have to look at the language to give you some advice. So if they in fact it's determined that they do conflict, your association really should be considering doing an amendment to your CCNRs to reflect what the board's position is or what the association's preference is on this responsibility characteristic. Okay, next question, number 14 from a board member. Our documents allow three directors. They state officers shall be president, secretary, vice president, treasurer, and any others as required by the board resolution from time to time. We have a president, secretary, and treasurer as we only have three directors. Documents allow for multiple offices, so the secretary and the treasurer can both be the same person. Should we ask membership first if we're contemplating adding a VP and combining the secretary treasurer position? I don't really think that's something that you would have to go to the membership on. I think it's probably already envisioned by your association's documents because you only have three directors as outlined in your documents and there's four positions or officer positions. I think I would just discuss this at a regular board meeting, open board meeting, and explain the need to have somebody to have somebody who's serving as a board member to have multiple offices, and I think that's fine. Question 15 from a board member. Does the board need to give 48 hours notice of a non-regularly scheduled board meeting when the only item on the agenda is a closed session item to discuss how to handle existing violation of the CCNRs? This is not considered an emergency meeting, but we should not wait the two months between regular board meetings. So the question is, do we have to give notice, 48 hours notice as required by the open meeting law when we are having an executive session of our board? And so the answer on that is yes. Even though owners can't attend an executive session, we still have to give them notice that we're having an executive session board meeting. 
And that notice also will need to indicate which section under the law, the executive session law, under the open meeting law, that you will be discussing or which topics you'll be discussing. So what you could do is cite in your agenda and your notice of meeting for the executive session that you're going to be talking about existing violations of the CCNRs and deciding on taking what legal action or what action to take next on that particular property or properties. Okay, next question. Question number 16 from a board member. Our CCNRs have a specific definition for owner. It's either the owner of record or the purchaser under a recorded executory contract. We believe this means the owner in Pima County Public Records. We have a unit where the owner on the county records passed away. A person now presents himself as an owner with an unrecorded warranty deed conveying title signed by the deceased notarized in Wisconsin. He says he didn't need to have it recorded and doesn't intend to. He paid the annual assessment for the unit. Are we allowed to recognize him as an owner for voting since the deed isn't recorded in Arizona? Wow, good question. So this person isn't an owner of record because the deed hasn't been recorded. You only become an owner of record when that deed would be recorded in the county where the property is located. I also do not feel that this person is a purchaser under a recorded executory contract because I don't think that the paperwork that they have with the warranty deed that's unrecorded conveying title, I don't feel that is a recorded executory contract. Some people might think that, but I, from a legal perspective, it, it's not recorded. And I think that's the key thing here. Is it a contract? Possibly because it's signed by both owners, by the former owner who's passed away now and this person who's presenting themselves as an owner. So because the bottom line is, because it's not recorded, the warranty deed, I don't think that this person should be treated as an owner and that's the bottom line. So they shouldn't be allowed to vote. Now, I think it's fine that if this person wants to voluntarily pay the assessments on this, of course, they certainly have the right to do that. But my advice to that person would be, you need to get this rectified because technically you don't really have any rights on this property until it's recorded. Okay, question number 17 from a board member. What are your thoughts on an HOA supplying and installing AEDs near sports amenities such as tennis courts, pickleball courts, pools, and gymnasiums? By doing so, there is an expectation that residents will receive medical Is there an expectation that residents are going to receive medical treatment from our community management? Will the HOA be required to certify users of these AEDs? Okay, so my office is awesome. They've already put some notes in here for me about Good Samaritan laws. And these laws, of course, are written to encourage bystanders to get bystanders to get involved in emergency circumstances without fears that they're going to be sued if they inadvertently contribute to a person's injury or death. An AED is a sophisticated but easy to use device. I've done some training on this myself for where I live and my board. And honestly, the directions are right on it when you're using it. So I'm not opposed to associations installing these AEDs throughout your community. They do need to be maintained if you're installing them. Of course, you can offer some training on it to your association members if you choose to do that. The bottom line is, I don't feel that there's an expectation that there's going to be medical treatment provided by the management of the association. And there, to my knowledge, there's no requirement to certify the users of these AEDs. 
The one thing that I always remind associations on, just be careful because if you have an AED on your property, you want to make sure that it works. That is something that you could have some liability on if there was an expectation that there was an AED there and somebody's going to use it and it misfunctions. There should be some sort of regular maintenance on that. Okay, next question, number 18. This is a board member question. In order to keep a board candidate off the board, may the current board tell the members that this candidate is chronically overdue in paying their assessment? (laughs) Great question. I would stay away from doing that. I know that at first glance, you think, gosh, we don't want anyone who's not paying their assessments to serve on the board. But I think that we need to be mindful. I don't know if they're obviously... If you had something in your association's documents that said that you can't serve on the board unless you're current on the payment of your assessments, if that were the case, you could tell the candidate, listen, you can't run because you're not current in the payment of your dues. If you bring your dues current, you can run. Sometimes they still want to run, even though they're delinquent. If there's even with that provision in the documents, if they get elected, they either need to bring their account current and keep it current or they can't serve on the board. But again, that needs to be in the CCNR. So... But the question that you're asking me is, can we tell the members that a candidate's candidates overdue chronically in paying their assessment? I would advise against it as best practices. Question 19 from a board member. Our board wants to hold an executive session without our community manager to talk about her performance. And she is insisting she is required to attend all of our executive sessions and won't allow us to do this. Is she correct? No, she is not correct. The board is, you're the boss, and you make decisions like this. Maybe the manager is worried that there won't be minutes taken. Maybe that's the official excuse. The unofficial excuse is maybe the manager is worried that she's going to get canned. Regardless, the board has the right to have an executive session without your management company there. Just make sure that you're noticing the executive session 48 hours in advance of the meeting and that you're indicating that you're going to be discussing under the executive session exemption. You're going to be discussing the job performance of your vendors and you will be fine. Take meeting minutes as well. The manager is not going to be there at that meeting. Okay, question number 20 from a board member. Is a deed transfer the same as a sale? That's hard for me to comment on because sometimes there's a deed transfer based upon like for estate planning purposes or maybe an interfamilial transfer. And that may not actually be the same as a sale where the property goes on MLS and there's an agreement and there's money transferred. So short answer would be not necessarily. It's not always the same as a sale. Now, what I'm guessing you're asking, is this the type of thing that's going to a detransfer? Is it going to require the owner to pay a disclosure fee that's set up under the law for the property changing hands between owner A and owner B or maybe pay a transfer fee or a capital contribution fee? It just, it really depends on how um, your CCNRs are awarded and it depends on how the sale or the transfer is handled and whether or not the disclosure law or whether the transfer fee or capital contribution fee language in your CCNRs will kick in. Question 21 from a president. We have one homeowner A that hasn't lived in their home for a decade, claiming to store belongings there. Homeowner A is up to date with dues but the backyard has extensive weed growth and is a fire hazard. Our deed restrictions do not encompass backyards. The neighbor, homeowner B, has a wall that 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 contacts homeowner A 
and claims to hear all sorts of noises in the house or on the roof of homeowner A. When homeowner B tries to discuss this with homeowner A, homeowner A refuses to discuss the noise and also refuses to discuss the weeds. Any advice? A couple things. If we're not allowed to, as an association, if we don't have the authority to regulate the backyard, the neighbor might be able to go to the city, town, or municipality, or county, and make a complaint about the extensive weeds and fire hazard, and that would be one recommendation I would have. In terms of the noise issue, they can contact the police if it is something that's really bothersome. They can document it and bring the documentation to the board. And if this is considered a nuisance, the board may want to send a letter to the homeowner A, letting them know that they've received complaints and this is potentially a nuisance and asking them to stop. I think those are some good suggestions for you as you navigate this difficult problem. Question number 22 from a board member. Recently, our board president moved out of our community and as such is no longer on the board. So I'm guessing the board member sold their property. There may be some files that are in his possession, but not in the records of the HOA executive director's office. Are those official files with vendors, government bodies, other HOAs, personal files, the property of the HOA? And if so, what is your recommendation to retrieve them? Is there any recourse if the files are the HOA property and they are not returned? And what is a reasonable time frame to provide them when requesting their return? Okay, this is a great question. Just, it's a good reminder to everybody who's listening here, who's on your board, is that all of the association's records really should be kept with the management, right? If it sounds like you have an HOA executive director here, then board members shouldn't be holding on to association records without the HOA executive director having a copy. So just remember that there should be a uniform place for all associations records. Now this gets a little sticky and tricky when you're a self-managed association. That is a problem that we see because usually one person on the board is the person who keeps all the records when you're self-managed. So in your case, here's what I would recommend. Send a correspondence to the prior board president Ask that person, do you have any association records? Please let us know. If you do have these records, we ask that you provide them to us within a week or two weeks. If the person doesn't respond or says they don't have any records, really it's even a difficult position because what are we going to do? We're going to file a lawsuit against this person asking them to give us the records and then they're going to respond and say, I don't have them or I lost them in the move or whatever. So you really don't have a lot of legal recourse if they're not returned because there may not be any evidence that they actually have them. I hope that works out. Usually if somebody had took the time to be the board president of your association, they're going to take the time to respond and give you an honest answer on this and hopefully they'll return anything that you need. Next question, number 23 from a board member. Our association used you to send a strong letter to a homeowner in September due to unruly conduct and damaged property. Those same homeowners had another misconduct incident, loud fighting outside, cursing. Management company sent a letter and a fine, which they paid. Yesterday, another fighting incident and the police were called. I asked the management company to send another letter and fine. They suggested we contact you to send a cease and desist letter. At what point do we do that rather than continue to fine them? I think, when you start to see 
misconduct and something that you're doing isn't working and it seems to be escalating now you've got the police coming i think you're at the point now where it's repeat behavior it's escalating it's potentially creating a dangerous situation in your community or at a minimum a nuisance i think it is time to turn it over for a formal cease and desist letter it doesn't mean that you're going to stop finding them it just means that you are escalating this because their behavior is escalating and the attorney is going to send a formal letter there's going to be legal fees that are going to be incurred in addition to finding them going forward and hopefully that will change the behavior okay question 24 from a manager if you have a homeowner with a shared wall view fence with the association and that wall is in need of repair and the homeowner is 50 percent responsible for payment but is not responding to our efforts to schedule the repair and make payment arrangements, what options does the association have to move forward with making the repair? Great question. Usually in this circumstance, the association has a provision in their CCNRs that allows the association to make the repairs and then charge the owner for the cost. In some cases, you can even lean for those charges or turn it over to your attorney to contact the owner, maybe even go to justice court to get the judgment for those charges. It really just depends on what your language says. So what I would do is I would make sure that you're documenting it by sending a letter to them, asking for them to contribute and to acknowledge that this needs to be done. If they don't respond, it probably knock on their door and make sure that they received it and are aware of it. If you're going to be entering their property to repair it, I think we're going to need their permission or at least notice them that the work's being done. And then if they don't pay it, then pursue legal remedies based upon what your CCNR say. Okay, next question I have from a board member. I have received the 2021 CPA contract. Upon reviewing the contract, I noticed that it references the word you throughout. The letter is addressed to the board of directors should I request that the document be updated to change you to board of directors? You certainly can. I'm sure they'll make that change for you. Question number 26. We're at the halfway mark in questions, which is awesome. So it's from a board member. If our secretary was the ARC chair and moved, how long does she need to keep the original ARC requests sent to her? And how long does she have to surrender them to the association? So this goes right hand in hand with the question that we just had about the president who moved. Again, I would reach out to the former ARC chair, ask that person if they have any records. If they do, please ask them to turn them over to you within two weeks. Next question from the, an administrator at a large master plan community. During board meetings, occasionally we have an owner in attendance who will attempt to either make a motion or second a motion. Should we just let them know that during the board meeting, only board members can be involved in the motion process, but they are free to comment before the board votes or takes action? That is exactly how I would handle it. And it sounds like maybe the owner is not familiar with how associations operate and what the open meeting law is. I would just let them know that this is the procedure that is followed in our association and it's in accordance with Arizona law. And if you continue to do this, we're gonna ask you, if you're interrupting the meeting, you'll be asked to leave. Okay, next question from a board member. How can an HOA enforce its governing documents? When an HOA's tenant, when a homeowner's tenant or guest violates a provision in the CCNRs or the association's rules and regulations, is the only recourse to pursue an enforcement action against the homeowner? 
Okay, so we have a great cheat sheet on this topic, and it's called Enforcement of Association CCNRs. And we've had a number of videos, too, that we've done on enforcement. So I encourage you to go to our website at mulcahylawfirm.com and check out our cheat sheet on enforcement or look at our videos on this topic. But here's the bottom line. If a tenant or a guest violates the CCNRs or the rules in an association, usually your association's CCNRs require the owner to be responsible for the behavior. You can fine the owner for the tenant's behavior, the guest's behavior. You can, if there's damage, you, the owner may have to pay for the damage under your documents typically. You can escalate this if this is a regular thing where it's really a problem tenant to the attorney and maybe we have to take the route of filing a lawsuit. You can go to the ADRE and file a complaint there and have an administrative law judge hear this case. There's lots of different remedies that you have and reach out to our firm so that we can help you navigate this situation. Question number 29 from a board member. Can the architecture committee of an HOA deny a homeowner erecting a shade structure in their west-facing backyard when others have been present for years in other yards in our community? We've looked at the laws regarding solar energy devices and you're wondering if we have to allow this. Okay, so a shade structure is different than a solar energy device, in my opinion. And I haven't seen this particular one, but there's different, definite legal dif differences. And I, I don't believe that my interpretation on this is I don't believe that the solar law is going to apply to a shade structure. The solar law as it's existing in its existing form and written. Okay, if you have a homeowner that wants to put a shade structure in their yard, you just need to do the same analysis that you would do under your architectural review sections in your CCNRs. Is this something that the association is going to allow or not allow? It looks like you've had some other homeowners in the association that may have had this. You'll have to look at how many homeowners there are. If there's 67% or 51% of your owners that have this exact same thing, I think you're going to be in a difficult situation and potentially legally challenged if you deny it, if you have that many homeowners that have this. So we got to look at all the facts in this situation, but I don't think that the law in Arizona that says associations cannot effectively prohibit solar energy devices in an HOA applies in this situation. Okay, question number 30. Is it a legal requirement for an HOA to provide a purchaser of a unit a copy of the current CCNRs, bylaws, and rules and regulations prior to the purchaser closing? So great question. Under Arizona law, there's disclosure requirements whenever a escrow opens and the association is contacted to be notified that there's an escrow open and that the purchaser is buying a lot or unit in your association. Now, it depends on what size your association is. So if it's 50 or more units or lots, the association is obligated to provide the CCNRs bylaws and rules to a purchaser, among other things. If, and we have a cheat sheet on this exact topic called transfer fees versus disclosure fees. And you can find that on our website if you want the deep dive in terms of all the different things that we have to provide to a purchaser. If you're 49 or fewer units, the seller of the unit or lot is required to provide it to the purchaser. But in many cases, the association gratuitously does that because the buyer sometimes doesn't, or the seller sometimes doesn't have all that information. Okay, next question, number 31. Our association has 222 units, 46 of which are patio homes. 
and all the rest are townhomes, 176. The association has been paying for the 46 patio homeowners front yard landscaping, maintenance, irrigation, repairs, grass and planted material replacement, all in violation of our CCNRs for years and not the other 176 owners. The association refused to correct the violation and in fact voted twice in the last 60 days to continue the practice until they get sued. What should I do? Okay, it sounds like you're on a board that's divided because the president's saying sue us and you're on the board asking the question. So this is problematic. I think you definitely need to loop your attorney in on this. You may have done this in the past, but you know better now, and it's a violation of your CCNRs based upon the information that you've given to me. And at a minimum, if the board won't agree to follow the CCNRs on this, you as a board member should ask to have the record reflect in minutes that you are opposed to this and you think it's a violation of your CCNRs. Hopefully you can loop your attorney in on this and the attorney will tell the board, listen, you need to stop doing this and because it's a violation of your CCNRs or you need to amend your CCNRs to allow this. Okay, next question, number 32 from a board member. We recently had a resident trip over a parking curb. She is fine, but should we have our residents and owners sign a waiver of liability as a good standard procedure and practice? Do you have a sample waiver we can use? Okay, a couple of things. A parking curb traditionally isn't like an inherently dangerous situation, but if some associations do paint these curbs to make them more noticeable to residents, I'm not saying paint everything yellow or anything like that, but I'm just saying if this is a curb that people are regularly tripping over, you may wanna do something to make sure that people are aware that this is a high curb or whatever. I don't think that having owner signing a general waiver of liability is going to prevent you from getting sued if an owner falls or trips on the common areas. I, it's not something that we're recommending to our clients. It's not standard procedure and practice. Okay, next question 33 from a board member. Your firm updated our CCNRs, which contain 40 articles and 40 pages in 2014. How much should we budget to cover reviewing and potentially updating our CCNRs in 2024, 2025? As a small self-managed HOA, it's important for us to be prepared for out-of-norm expenses. So I think a great thing for you to do would be we offer a free CCNR review and we'll take a look at what your amended documents say right now and we'll give you an estimate as to how much we anticipate the updating of the CCNRs will cost when you ultimately do it in 2024 or 25. So I would encourage you to reach out to our firm, send me an email, ask for the free CCNR review, and then we can give you that information. Question number 34 from a board member. Question about the Planned Communities Act, 33-1806C. From 2012 to 2019, the HOA provided resale disclosure statement and charged owners $100. In 2020, the HOA hired a management company that took over providing resale disclosure statements to the owners. The management company charged $400 for the resale disclosure statement. $400 is substantially more than the 20% above the prior year. Does this increase violate 331806C? So short answer would be yes. The specific language of the law only allows you to increase it 20% per year. So if in 2020 you were charging $100, you could only increase it 
20% each year until it maxed out at $400. I see this frequently in associations where nobody is following this increase at 20% above the prior year. I haven't seen any lawsuits on this, so it's hard for me to say that there's going to be a lawsuit against your management company for this. I think what I would recommend that you do as a board would be that I would send the management company a letter or talk about this in the meeting minutes and just say, hey, this is a potential violation of this law because you're charging 400. And we expect that if we're sued on this, that the management company will indemnify us for any legal fees that would be incurred in defending a lawsuit of this nature and for paying any judgments that would be rendered against us for this particular violation. I'm concerned a little bit that your management company contract allows for this $400, and so you're legally obligated to pay them that. And so if you push it too much, they might say, fine, we'll collect whatever the 20% is now. So I guess it would be 20% of 120 in 2022. you got to make up the difference board. So this is just a sticky wicket. Another reason why when you hired the management company, you should always have your attorney for the association review the contract because we would have raised that issue if we saw that. Okay, next question, number 35 from a board member. What is your opinion about a community manager who sends more violation notices about weeds than any other violation, but rarely sends notices about unapproved architectural changes and doesn't follow up violations about the unapproved architectural changes. In my opinion, unapproved architectural changes affect property values much more than weeds. Okay, I think what I would recommend you do in this situation, so what do I think about it? I think that you need to have a meeting with the manager and maybe even the management company and maybe if you have a compliance officer who's doing all these violation checks. And I think you need to talk about how violations are going to be handled and how unapproved architectural changes are handled and make sure that you guys are in alignment on how these violation notices and letters should be sent and what types of things that they should be focusing on, etc. Question 36 from a board member. Can the size of the board be changed by amending the bylaws, which only requires a majority of a quorum of members present? Or do the articles need to be amended, which require two-thirds of the entire membership? Our articles state the board is nine members. The amended articles require two-thirds of the membership to vote for amendments. Bylaws, which were amended later, require later than the articles state that the board is seven members. The bylaws state in the case of any conflict between the articles and the bylaws, the articles shall control. In this case, the conflict between the declaration and these bylaws, the declaration shall control. Okay, so you've got a situation where your articles say one thing, your bylaws say another thing in terms of how many members you should have. So articles say nine, bylaws say seven. Articles trump under the law, so you should be following a nine-member board. Now, you also want to check your CCNRs to make sure that the CCNRs don't have a number of board members because the CCNRs trump both the articles and the bylaws. Okay, we're on question number 37. How many questions do we have today? 52. Wowza, we got a lot of questions today. That's great. The board signed off on a fee schedule. This is a board member question. The board signed off on a fee schedule specifically for CCNR violations using your cheat sheet sample. 
after the third notice fine, which has a $75 fine, it went to $150 per day. This seems excessive, and now we are questioning whether this will hold up in court as reasonable. What would the courts deem as reasonable? We have on our cheat sheet, we just have language on how the procedure to find. We don't really give amounts. As a matter of fact, I usually don't encourage boards to set amounts like $10 first violation, $50 second violation, $75 third. I usually just say the statute just allows the board to make sure that the violation fine is reasonable. So I guess your question is, is this reasonable? What do courts deem reasonable? It really just depends on the violation. If it's a serious health and safety violation, $150 per day, that's legit. I think that's enforceable. If it's $150 per day for trimming, failure to trim palm trees, yeah, no, that's not going to be legit. So I think that you need to look at the violation and then get advice on how a court is going to interpret if this is reasonable or not reasonable. Okay, question number 38 from a board member. We are in the process of updating our CCNRs and bylaws with your firm. Current board member wants to mandate in the new CCNRs that owners are required to have separate homeowners insurance to cover their condo and must provide a copy to the board. Can or should the board include this in the new CCNRs and is it legal under the Arizona statutes? So it really depends on a couple things. If your association is a condominium, we've got to look at what the condominium act says on this. We have to look at what your amendments say on this, but short answer would be, I think this probably can be included in the CCNRs. What type of insurance the homeowners have, we're gonna to have to look at specifically how you wanna word that in relation to the language in your documents and what the condominium act says. It is kind of an administrative nightmare, though, to provide a copy of this declaration of insurance annually because everybody has different due dates for their insurance. So we'll want to really talk this through and decide whether or not this is a good idea as you're navigating these amendments. Okay, next question from a manager, number 39. We have updated our bylaws and almost have ready for you to review as your as our attorney. After review and changes are done, do we have to have the membership vote on accepting the new bylaws or can the board just pass them? We cannot find anything in the CCNRs. Only once in 20 years have the bylaws been updated and we had a membership vote to accept them. What I'd like to do is look at what the language in your bylaws says about amendments. And so I know in the past, maybe you had a membership vote to accept them. So I'm guessing maybe that there's a provision in your bylaws that requires a membership vote. If there isn't a provision in your bylaws, we'll want to look at, is there something in the Nonprofit Corporation Act that might require a vote of the membership or might allow us to have the board vote on this? So I'd like to look at the documents and give you a more formal opinion on that. Question number 40 from a board member. A service and responsibility of the association has been voted on by the board to transfer responsibility to the homeowner. The CCNRs gives the board permission to do this. Are the CCNRs retyped, leaving the service and responsibility out, which is one of the 10 items detailed? I'm trying to determine if I need to start retyping the CCNRs or if it can be accomplished in a different way. Okay, so I'm not quite sure what you mean by a service and responsibility has been voted on by the board to give something responsibility to the homeowner. So I guess maybe you're trying to transfer some sort of maintenance responsibility 
the board can do this according to your CCNRs, according to what you're telling me. I think you really need to loop in your attorney on this to get some advice because you want to make sure you do this right. My feeling is talk to your attorney about this or reach out to my firm. I wouldn't change your CCNRs and take it out unless it's voted on by the membership to remove it because you don't want to mis- misrepresent what the CCNRs state. If the board really can do this, you probably need to do it in an open board meeting and there needs to be notification to the owners and you should, you know, there's a process that you will need to follow. So I think your question exceeds the scope of First Fridays that need more information. Okay, next question from a board member. We are in the process of amending and restating our CCNRs. We allow rentals, but would like to further clarify that the length of the rental period is a certain amount. We would like to insert a minimum of 60 days. Can we legally insert this language? Our CCNRs indicate that a two-thirds majority would need to approve any changes. Okay, so again, this is gonna need to be a CCNR vote. Can you legally insert this language? You know, we're gonna have to look at this new case that was decided. Obviously, I'd like to know if you're an HOA or a condo, I believe, based upon your association name, you're an HOA. Let's take a look at this on contact our office. We can take a look at the language in this new Supreme Court decision. I think it it likely still can be done. However, there might be some risks, and we'll talk about those risks and what language we might include in the CCNRs amendment to put a minimum rental period day in there that could minimize your risk based upon the new case law by the Supreme Court of Arizona. Next question, number 42. I know the Arizona Supreme Court decided not to report the Turtle Rock 3 case regarding fines after 2017. We have an old rule based on a fine policy from a January, from January 2018. Are the practices in levying and collecting fines, have they changed since this Turtle Rock case not being published? Yes, it's our firm's opinion that the Turtle Rock 3 case was depublished, and so it's not good law. In my opinion, it's not something that associations are bound by because it was depublished. You know, what I know that one of our Chi-Chi talks a little bit about the Turtle Rock 3 case. Your association can voluntarily adopt this as a best practices if you choose to do so. The, the elements that were required for the Turtle Rock in the Turtle Rock case, or you don't have to. You can just go back to what the fallback is under the law. So if you want to go back to simplifying the rule that you adopted in 2018 based upon the Turtle Rock case, you certainly can. I would just suggest that you reach out to our firm to help you rewrite it, or you could just copy exactly what's in the Planned Communities Act on fines, and that would be sufficient too. That notice an opportunity to be heard, the board can levy a fine, and the fine has to be reasonable, etc. Okay, question 43. If a 50-year-old child is living with a parent in a 55-plus community, would they have to sell and move if the parent dies and the child is not yet 55? Okay, this is a detailed answer type thing, but the short answer is our firm would advise against you forcing someone who's 55 to move if the parent dies in a 55 and over community. Same analysis could be done for a spouse that may not be 55. Make sure you check out our cheat sheet on federal laws and it talks more about 55 and over communities. Question 44 uh, from a board member, if a community has tried to pass an increase and or special assessment to address an older community that needs to have work performed, can after three times approve an increase without going to the community or if the community disapproves, go ahead and just implement it. 
our current community manager seems to think we would be able to, but that we should seek a legal opinion. I'm at the point I do not trust this management company and what they say. We have a consumer price index formula in our bylaws that has a high percentage that our community needs to meet for any increase. So again, I'm in agreement with you here. This is a board member who's contacting me on this. So if your CCNRs have a specific procedure that you have to follow to levy an increase in your assessment or a special assessment, you need to follow that. And so if your manager is telling you that you probably can do this without getting a vote of the membership. I don't agree with it. The good thing is your manager did say get a legal opinion. Hopefully the attorney that you're reaching out to is going to give you the right opinion, which would be follow your documents. Okay, next question, number 45. We have a lot of complaints about members receiving too many emails and phone calls, about members receiving too many emails and phone calls from members campaigning for the board. Please let us know the laws and rules regarding exactly what information must be provided to co-owners and which can be withheld. Obviously, name and, adding, name and mailing address of owners would be acceptable to give to homeowners who maybe want information to contact their other owners. But phone and email are problematic, especially every year around election time. I'm in agreement with this board member who's contacting me. The association is required to give the names and the property addresses of all owners in the association to any other owner who requests it. However, personal phone numbers, personal email emails of owners is something that is personal information and the association can withhold that from providing that to the owner who's requesting it about another owner. Now, of course, if an owner says it's okay to give my phone an email, then you know that should be in writing and then the association can give that out. Question 46, where can I find laws describing HOA document retention requirements? Our association is more than 40, year old, 40 years old. We've got a lot of paper saved. How can we purge documents? And where are these retention guidelines listed? So we have a great cheat sheet on this exact topic called Association Records and Documents. And we're gonna be sharing it here with you on Facebook Live and on Zoom. You can also find it on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. And that's gonna give you the 411 on everything you need to know on document retention. Okay, next question, number 47. If an HOA property, if an HOA properly amended its CCNRs to limit rentals to 60 or more days in 2018, we filed amended CCNRs with the recorders, Maricopa County recorder, what recourse does an association have in addressing a violation beyond levying fines? So it looks like you've got a rental, a short-term rental provision. Somebody potentially is violating it. You have lots of different legal remedies. So you can levy fines. You can turn it over to an attorney. You can go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate, file a complaint, and have an administrative law judge do take an evaluation of this and rule on it at a hearing. You can file litigation against the owner, have your attorney send a demand letter. There's all kinds of things that you can do. So reach out to our firm and we can help you with addressing this violation. Number 48, from an owner, when adding or changing line items in a budget, is an amendment to existing budget required? Yes, so I would just do this at a regular open board meeting and I would indicate what the change is, have the board vote on it, and then have the meeting minutes reflected. And then of course the budget should also reflect it going forward. Question 49 from a board president. 
when adding or changing line items in an HOA budget is an amendment. Oops, I think that might be a duplicate question. So sorry about that. Question number 50. As a board member with an open election for board of directors, can the current board member email homeowners to campaign for candidates running? So what kind of limitations or restrictions are best practices for a board member to follow during the election in terms of how board members campaign for candidates? So my suggestion on this would be that if a board member wants to get active in campaigning for candidates, that they do it in the form of being a homeowner and not under their title as a board member. Next question, 51. We levied a special assessment with three years to repay but did not specify if owners need to pay monthly, quarterly, or anything. Since there is no set repayment schedule, would, there ever, would they ever be considered delinquent, considered, considering unless they failed to pay the entire assessment by the end of the three years? Okay, so I'd have to go back to look at how the paperwork was done on this, but if you gave them a special assessment and they can pay it in three years, and you didn't tell them the due dates for it, then it probably won't be past due until the end of the three years. But again, I'd have to look at the language. Number 52, which I believe is our last question. What is the statutory limit for breach of duty of care for an officer who has since resigned almost a year ago? The case would involve myself and owner and the ex-board member, not against the association. Okay, so if you're going to sue an owner or a board member for a breach of the duty of care, that's going to be a fiduciary duty violation, and it would be typically that's going to be a negligence, which is going to be a two-year statute of limitations, possibly a six-year statute of limitations if it's a duty of care for failing to follow the CCNRs, which would be a contract. I think you got to really think long and hard about this because you, as an owner, suing an ex-owner personally and not involving the association, it's not going to work because the owner is, you can't sue some, a board member person in their personal capacity, you'd have to sue the association. And if you sue the association, there's likely going to be insurance coverage. So the former board member is going to be covered under that policy. So I think I'd really think long and hard before you do this because a, these duty of care cases, there may not be any sort of financial recovery for you you're likely it's going to be dismissed because you can't sue an ex-board member in their personal capacity. And if you ultimately end up suing the association, it's like suing yourself, right? You're on the board right now, or maybe you're an owner. It's like suing the association that you live in. You're going to be paying out of pocket for your attorney. The association is going to have an insurance company defending them for free. It really doesn't make sense to do that. So you may want to reach out to an attorney to talk more about whether that's a good idea to pursue. Okay, we made it through. It's 1027. Thank you today for joining us for our firm's first Friday event. We had over 92 attendees on Zoom and 20 live viewers on Facebook. So that's awesome. We had over 100 people here today. We answered 52 questions in an hour and a half. I think that's a record number of questions in in a first Friday free call-in. We have three additional free learning opportunities during the month of April 2022 that I want to make you aware of. This month, we're launching a four-series, four-class series with the City of Chandler. The Chandler HOA Academy series begins on Wednesday, April 13th at 5 o'clock p.m., and it's in person. Finally, going back to some in-person classes, 
And we're going to be discussing a number of on April 13th and again on April 27th. I encourage you to look at those two classes on our website. One's going to be a boot camp on board member roles and responsibilities on April 13th. And on April 27th, we're going to be covering hot topics, including some of the topics that we talked about here today, rental restriction, short-term rentals, that new Supreme Court case. So I encourage you to check out our website to look at those in-person City of Chandler opportunities that are coming up. Also, we have our firm's 2022 Virtual HOA Academy, our fourth class for April 2022, on Tuesday, April 19th, 2022, from 11 to 12 p.m. The topic we're going to be discussing is people problems and tips on how to handle difficult and disgruntled owners. So that's going to be a must tune in because I will let you know that I get questions on that from board members and property managers all the time. So we're going to be giving you some great tips from the trenches on how to handle people problems and difficult owners. And again, our next virtual First Friday event is going to be Friday, May 6th. And so we encourage you to join us again for our May First Friday event on May 6th. So we hope to see you later this month at one of our free educational opportunities. Have a great weekend. Happy Easter. Happy Passover a little bit early. Hope you have a wonderful April and appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 